Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 33 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a sensational headline grabber of a show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with Nick Kemp. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Nick Kemp this week. We shall be exploring provocative change works. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I then bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So, first of all, today is this week's interview. I am thrilled to be welcoming Nick Kemp to Hypnosis Weekly. Nick Kemp is someone who seems to have been a permanent fixture in these fields throughout the years that I've been involved with it. I've read his articles, read his blog entries and brushed past him in metaphorical corridors of the fields of hypnosis and NLP. Many of the highly respected professional peers I have, my friends and colleagues within these fields, over recent years in particular, kept making reference to Nick and his work. So I went and explored some more. I was vaguely, vaguely aware of the work of Frank Farrelly, as you'll hear later on. But I was hearing how his legacy had been picked up and developed even further by Nick. And that the results, as a result, were also outstanding. I saw him offer up a comment on a Facebook thread a few weeks back and I seized my opportunity to ask him to join me here on this podcast. I think you're really going to appreciate Nick's generosity with information for starters. So for now, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome the one and only Mr. Nick Kemp to Hypnosis Weekly. Nick, a warm welcome to you. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Um, 
Nick, we're going to roll our sleeves up, first of all. Tell us, first of all, how did you get into these fields? Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you've arrived at where you are now. Well, I, well, first of all, it depends what you mean by these fields, but I'll give you a potted history. Sure. My background originally was in business, so I worked in um, sales, marketing, and recruitment for many, many years, and the the central theme in that was being able to problem solve. You had to be able to figure out solutions in different contexts. Mm. And also there was a lot of being able to generate attention with clients and sales. So communication skills were just really, really important. So my background was originally in figuring out how to resolve situations. And this, obviously, initially was in a business context, but then translated across into other contexts. I started getting interested formally in NLP and hypnosis in the late 90s. And then, like many people, went through sort of like an endless series of courses. It's a bit yeah. like sort of joining the scouts, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got a practitioner badge. Now I got the master practitioner badge. Now I've got... The Meta Master Practitioner Badge. <laughs> now I've got the train of... So I've got, got all these different... Did all these different things. Yeah. Um, and around... It would have been around sort of like early 2000, I decided to sort of move out of my old business industry. And people started asking me about doing trainings for business, which at that time I had really no intention of doing but started off doing a few things by request. Um, alongside doing all my NLP trainings, I suddenly thought, you know what? I think there's a real opportunity for something which is much more stripped down mm. and much more sort of take away all the jargon, take away all the um, periphery elements. Let's just look at what works. So at the heart of what I'm doing these days, which we'll talk about in a bit, which is yeah. the Cognitive Change Works model, it came from um, business problem solving, extensive experience of doing NLP and hypnosis type work. Because when I launch into something, I usually go a thousand percent. I'll read everything I can read, watch everything I can watch, attend everything I can attend. But the end of it, what I'm interested in is how you create manageable, noticeable, lasting change that's verifiable. You know, mm. not just some wonderful seven secrets of the universe type pamphlet, but what is demonstrable that you can measure and outcomes that you can say, yep, we can say that's definitely different now to what it was before. Yeah. So that's the background. Um, I've been in personal development for probably around 30 years, way back into the late yeah. 70s. But the last 20 years have been sort of refining the PCW model and teaching that literally all around the world, Asia, USA, Europe, and of course in the UK. Yeah, I think um, when, when we start exploring that um, later on with our discussion, um, um, I, think, I think those principles and those background that you talk about becomes very evident when people start to, certainly w with the way in which I've been exploring it in preparation for our call today, you know, it becomes very evident um, um, how thorough, diligent um, 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 you are in your approach. Um, and, and so I'm really looking forward to, to discussing that. Um, um, so, so with regards to hypnosis, um, 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 I, 
I don't know how much it centres as part of your work these days, but to tell us a little bit about um, 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 how you define hypnosis, how you arrived at that de- definition, and, and how you explain hypnosis to other people. Okay, well, hypnosis has got to be one of the most misunderstood, <laughs> misconstrued terms on the entire planet. You know, <laughs> I'll have clients come to me say, I tried hypnosis and it didn't work, or they couldn't put me under. Um, My way of thinking about hypnosis, and I I was very interested in the whole element of how you change and produce state changes. So I think of hypnosis as classical definition, fixed point of attention to the exclusion of everything else. Mm. So essentially you have your formalized hypnosis, which could be clinical hypnosis, Ericksonian hypnosis, People often confuse stage hypnosis with what I regard as hypnosis. So I often have clients saying, will I be dancing like Elvis with a broom? And I go, well, not unless you pay the extra fee for that. (laughs) Don't really do that in private sessions. (laughs) So hypnosis is, is where people engage in a particular way so that they have a fixed point of attention on some things to the exclusion of everything else. So in that sense, all sales and marketing is also hypnosis, anything that gets your attention and maintains attention. Mm. Um, maintains attention. Yeah. So when I think of hypnosis, I'm thinking about it as sensory engagement. So this means marketing, sales, advertising, music, performance, all these things where you're getting somebody's attention, you're changing them their state, and you're taking very much into one way of perceiving certain things. Mm. Um, the newspapers and the media are fantastic examples of hypnosis. If I wanted to be a little more controversial, I could suggest that all religion is a great form of hypnosis. Um, so in terms of working with clients these days, I, I started producing specific hypnosis CDs around 2001. Never commercially intended to do these, but I started to do some like uh, induction-type material in my studio. I was recording all my own instruments because the general free music you could get was just terrible. You know, mm. it, uh, it just sounded, you know, the sound of the whistling bells on the moors was not my yeah. cup of tea. <laughs> So um, those CDs under the uh, what was then the Human Alchemy brand did really well. I sold a good few yeah. thousand of those. Yeah. Um, but these days, I'm using hypnosis in very short bursts during client sessions, um, very non-directive and very much about reinforcing the client's own insights and realizations. So it's very much... Um, using their metaphors and using taking them into relaxed states and getting them to notice for themselves what's useful rather than me directing them in some formalized sort of Elman type induction. Mm. Mm. Um, um, thank you. I mean, we're going to talk about, what, you know, and, and I'm guessing that, that, that it'll be very difficult to avoid the influence of, of Frank Farrelly and your relationship with Frank um, 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 over the years. Um, as you as you started to to develop what is now the provocative change works. Um, um, uh, aside from that, as we're going to explore later on, with regards to sort of hypnosis and NLP, mm. um, with with the earlier elements of 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 your career, 
Um, um, who were some of your major influences? Um, um, were there some books and authors that taught you more or teachers that were more influential upon you? Perhaps you could give us a little bit of insight yeah, as to why. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first, thing, the first thing is when I started looking at hypnosis, I mean, I studied originally with uh, Richard Bandler, who had immediately hooked me into uh, Milton Erickson. Hmm. Um, and... You know, there would be thousands of people attending Richard's courses who would then do terrible impersonations of Milton Erickson. Yeah. Uh, which is mm-hmm. not my particular sort of uh, like, you know. If I hear any sort of more practitioners, young newbie practitioners, start an induction with now. Sounds <laughs> like Peter Cushing coming out of the graveyard. <laughs> it's one too many. So... The people that have influenced me, some will be uh, will be known to people listening to this. Um, I would say definitely Stephen Brooks, uh, right from the outset, uh, excellent Ericksonian British hypnotherapist, uh, hypnotist, hypnotherapist, mostly based in Thailand now. Um, Steve Gilman would definitely be in there, and I was lucky to have dinner with Steve and Robert Diltz um, a while back in Tokyo great characters and very conversational, very interested in lots of different things. And the other one, which is probably less known to people, would be a guy called Dave Dobson. Dave Dobson uh, produced a set of work called Other Than Conscious Communication. Mm. And Dave was phenomenal as a hypnotist, and he produced a series of products called Fun Shops. Mm. And Dave would talk really slow, just like this. So you either got on with that or it drove you crazy. Yeah. But his insights and like um, the very best people, his work was grounded in working with clients. In terms of books, I would say um, Bill O'Hanlon, also um, Taproots yeah. uh, would be definitely up there. The Compendium, uh, My Voice, uh will go with you or my voice is with you would also be in there. And the other person who's certainly um, worth watching out is Doug O'Brien from New York, who uh, is also, I'm co-training with actually over Halloween weekend in the UK is also excellent. But again, he's based in the Ericksonian tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Tell us with regards to, to, to hypnosis and some of the change work that you've, that you've encountered over the years, um, um, what's been some of the most or, or, or one of the more impressive applications that, that you've directly witnessed that you've thought, you know, or, or had a wow moment? Okay, you were talking about applications I've seen or applications where I've been involved with clients and something's happened? Um, 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 either, really. I, I, okay. I, I'll be fascinated in either or both or one. Or... All right, well, well let, me give you, let me give you the best example. Probably... In fact, not even probably, scratch that. The single most effective approach I've ever used, which is hypnotically based, in fact, I'd say single best approach of all of these, is something I came up with when I was back in 2006 working um, on BBC Radio Leeds with people who had phobias. Every week they would give me somebody who had a phobia, and initially I thought it would be maybe one or two slots an hour on a Wednesday afternoon, two till three o'clock. This went on for 26 consecutive weeks. (laughs) So every single week they would say, today we have Mary who has 50 years phobia of uh, birds. 
Um, so what happened in these situations, because what would happen is we'd go into the studio, do a, what we call a trail for the program where we talk to the phobic uh, client and I'd give some feedback. Then I would go off for an hour. Then we would come back in and record the results or go into a live situation where we would bring in live tarantula or go to live tropical house in Leeds to see snakes or whatever else. So we would test the work. And the, what I noticed was that in classical um, NLP and classical hypnosis, you would have, mostly for phobias, uh, the very well, very well-thumbed fast phobia cure, which is mostly working around visual representations. Yeah. You know, it's a double disassociation. But what I found was that mostly my experience was it wasn't what people were seeing, it's how they were interpreting what they were seeing. Mm. Um, so, you know, see picture of spider and think, whoa, get feeling. Yeah. Um, Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's yeah. not the thing, it's how the person reacts to the thing. So from this was developed an approach called the voice tempo exercise. Yeah. The voice tempo exercise basically takes and changes the speed of the internal dialogue. So in 2006, I'd been working for about two months with the BBC folks and in private client sessions, and I rang Steve Andreas up, my good friend in... Um, Boulder, Colorado, and said, I found something that's kind of interesting. I said, there's not a lot to it. And he went, well, talk to it through as if I'm a client. And I explained to him that the process was about changing the speed of the internal dialogue in a very precise, sequential way. And he said, well, how many people have been able to get back the anxiety from having done this? I said, well, nobody so far. And I've done about 300. Mm. Uh, and he said, well, you should write that up, Nick. I said, wow, Steve, it's just a, he said, look, if you don't write it up, somebody will steal it and claim it for themselves. So I immediately wrote it up. He published it in his book, Transforming Negative Self-Talk. And I'm now up to around 2,000 to 2,200 clients. And I've never had anybody able to get the anxiety back using this approach. Wow including clients who've had phobias for like 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. But like all things, it's simple. You know, the feelings that people get, whether they're anxiety feelings or any other kind of feelings, fundamentally are created by four main ways. Hit, see or hear externally, picture or think to yourself internally. Feelings are second stage and then behavior translates after that. Yeah. You may have smell and taste, but I've never had that in any client sessions no. as a primary driver. So I've many examples of that. And the best one in recent times was, and I can name her because she gave me a, t a testimonial, uh, a woman called Lucy Evans, who's a Welsh international runner. Mm. Lucy Evans was two months away from um, competing to, for the trials to be in the Commonwealth Games. And she hadn't got her best time for the last, uh, her best time up to date was two years ago, and she needed to be better than that in order to qualify. So she comes to see me. So the question, of course, is always, from a practitioner's point of view, the single most important question when they have a problem is how are they creating the problem? What are they doing in order to create the consistent um, recurring experience they're getting at the moment? 
And what we find is that Lucy, unsurprisingly, is not primarily driven by visual representations. And all her coaches have talked about focusing, looking at, thinking about everything visually. So that hasn't worked. So before she starts a race, what's the thing that goes through her head, which creates the anxiety? Find out phrase, change phrase, comes back a week later, has won every single race but still doesn't have her best time. Mm. So we do some more work, and I say, well, what would make it better? And she says, well, on the starting blocks, I need to be faster off the starting blocks. So pull up our good friend YouTube, get as close a representation as we can, do some hypnosis work and sort of tweaking to get her into the right state of concentration and relaxation, and... All the sessions, of course, that I do with clients are recorded. She goes away, listens to the session. Brilliant. week later, I get an email saying, I just got my lifetime best starting uh, time for the uh, 100 meters. I'm now qualified to run in the Commonwealth Games. Wow. So that's good evaluation, you know. There's yeah. no fuzziness about it. No. It's like this before and it's like this after. And I still am in contact and do Skype sessions with her when she's in the U.S., to continue to refine and tweak um, um, developments and refinements. Yeah. Um, so there's coaching examples. I could give you business examples, therapeutic examples, but essentially it's always the same thing. It's problem solving. Yeah. I don't categorize things in therapeutic business, coaching, personal development. No. Um, it's all about problem solving. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love to hear that. Sorry, I was I, I was so engaged with that that I completely forgot that I'm actually here. Um, um, that, 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 You're still that, here, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I, I'm supposed to be keeping some structure to things here. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I really loved hearing that. Um, um, that that's that you know real music to my ears. Um, tell us a little bit, Nick. Um, um, if you could go back to when you started out exploring these fields and and, and were going into these fields, um, um professionally, you know, with, with with the hypnosis, with the NLP, um, um. All these years later, knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd do differently at the start? And if so, what? And is, is there any advice, therefore, that you'd extend to yeah. hypnotherapists of today? Yeah, I think that there's definite things I would think about. I mean, the, the best advice I had in terms of doing an NLP course is don't read anything before you go and just go do the course. Right. Because people would turn up with having read all sorts of somewhat, in cases, verbally um, uh, skilled written books yes. and just think yes but are we doing this are we doing that i went in with no idea at all um and that was fantastic because it was essentially a clean slate yeah in terms of doing any training i think i would always advise people to talk to the trainer before you start and be clear about the training style the size of groups and the what's expected because there are all kinds of different courses including the sort of you know, ever decreasing amount of time where you can be a practitioner, master practitioner, Lord of the Universe practitioner, etc., etc. <laughs> the key thing is what am what what are you going to get from the training, and was it expected from the training, and what's the training style? Yeah. So I would definitely look at that. If I was going to go back in time, I mean, I was encouraged, unsurprisingly, by the main training institute I was with to only train with them, I would look around more at other things. 
because when I first trained with Frank Farrelly in 2004, it basically blew out a whole bunch of preconceptions I had about um, the world of NLP therapy and training. Yeah. Um, it was a wonderful counterpoint. <laughs> and I was literally reeling from the, the differences in terms of really grounding things in working with real-life people being much more conversational. Mm. So I'd say more discrimination in the, early, in the early days. Now there's more information online in terms of video and stuff that wasn't really back then. So that's useful to think about. Yeah. But the key thing is to, is to really think about everything in terms of process and not get too stuck in um, jargon terms and information. Because yeah. at the end of the day, the key to anybody who's good at what they do is you can give them a live client and they can affect some useful change in a very short period of time that's verifiable, that you can demonstrate where something useful's happened. Yeah. Um, and that means, you, you know, in a workshop when people ha are doing demonstrations, a lot of the time, especially with the big, big workshops, the demonstration subjects may have already had 40 hours of hypnosis and NLP, so they're not representative people in sort of real-life situations. Yeah. Real life situations, a lot of people will respond quite differently. Exactly. So I think um, smaller group trainings would definitely be something I would advocate. At least, um, if you're going to do big group trainings, at least do some smaller ones as well. Yeah. Because the big NLP trainings I did, the biggest one was 600 people. Yeah. And if you've ever heard 600 people move their chairs, let me tell you, it's <laughs> not a pleasant experience. No. Um, no. And it's a bit chaotic it's a great experience but it's not a great learning environment no um the other thing would be to maintain some continual professional development and to be constantly reviewing and thinking about what you're doing and of course without doubt as much practice as possible because yeah. practice develops precision and fly time is essential yeah. You know, the idea that people can have skills completely unconsciously installed is a wonderful concept in sales trainings, but it's not necessarily grounded in reality. No. So those would be those would be the key things. Yeah, that's really valuable. Um, that I would that I, that I would suggest. And fine, you know, talk to the person who's gonna who's gonna be running the training because if you're in a room with somebody for seven, eight, ten, twenty days, at least establish that you think you're going to sort of be able to interact and get on with the person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, think, I think that's vitally important. Um, get a sense that you're going to be able to, to, to connect at some level. Um, um, you, you know, a, a training experience whereby people, people don't feel that way towards the trainer could potentially be soul-destroying um, um, and not a good educational um, um, experience. Um, Nick, some of the... Some of the um, 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 you know, some of the points that you've made with regards to verifiable change, you know, some of the points that you've made with regards to um, um, continued professional development and reviewing what you do and, and, and yielding, you know, if, if information supersedes or, ex, or, or information develops the direction you go in. These are all sort of concepts that are very often associated with, 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 with some of the more evidence-based approaches. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit, what, what are your thoughts about evidence-based approaches to, 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 to these sorts of fields, hypnosis, NLP, even the, the provocative change works? Well, here we get into an interesting area. Yes. Because, because when, when we have people saying, 
are there studies which have shown blah 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 blah? Yeah. It becomes becomes a whole interesting minefield. Yeah. You know, um, my wife, who's a long-standing medic due to re- GP, due to retire next year, would say that um, through her channels and what medics are told, CBT, um, which is a favoured approach by the government, well, certainly up until in recent years, yeah. has a one in eight success rate, statistically verified. Yeah. Now, if I was getting a one in eight success rate, I'd be throwing myself off the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I mean, that's just terrible, yeah. you know. And um, but with all these sort of studies, the question is, how are you doing the evaluation? Um, now, there's there's initiatives in recent time. I think some sort of research is is useful and important. So Frank Bork, for example, who's uh, heading up the research and recognition project in. Um, in America for NLP and yeah. where they've had substantial funding to do work with PTSD people. They're doing sort of proper evaluation. Same with Richard Gray, who's based in um, New York. They're, they're going through this actual process. Um, personally, I like to see my, my true, my um, criteria for feedback is what the client feel, feeds back not what the academics actually do through statistical analysis, where you can change the filter of measurement in many different ways and then sort of get completely different results. You have the same discussions with um, other approaches. I mean, totally different. But if we say acupuncture, for example, you know, one very cognitively challenged NLP trainer in overseas told me once that he thought the whole of the field of acupuncture was complete placebo. Um, I did point mm. out it had been around for thousands of years, and the BMA website had 83 articles talking about applications and studies and how it was useful, including doing an entire cesarean under acupuncture. Yeah. But he would never be convinced, so I offered to give him, pay for him to do an acupuncture session, so at least he would have some personal experience. So I think, to, to surmise, the key thing with this is that, things to remember is that, Things which are cutting edge and working are always going to be ahead of the curb. Um, when we talk about Frank Farrelly, I can talk about his sort of battles with provocative therapy and yeah. how people were just basically going, what is this? Yeah. But he was getting the results. Yeah. So I think if we take, say, even either hypnosis or NLP, it's difficult to do an evaluation because even the co-creators of NLP can't decide on what it is. In terms of hypnosis, there's huge, huge variations in definition as to what it is. Um, and I'm not convinced that, um, although I'm happy for people to do research, I'm not convinced that statistical analysis, how you do that, you can come out with something which is going to be the absolute yardstick to measure the effectiveness of things. Sure. Um, the other thing, of course, is that there's vested financial interest in a lot of approaches um, to maintain the status quo and not to be able to have some therapeutic approach where it's essentially just somebody talking. So there's no money in any actual material product. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of different elements in this. Yeah, um, there really are. Nick, 
we're um, um, we're coming towards the end of, of our interview and, and I'm really excited. We're going to start um, um, examining, start having a look at um, um, the provocative change works. Um, um, just tell us, um, where can people go to learn more about about your work and about you? Okay, well, two two main sites. I, I used to have 13 sites and I woke up one day and thought, Jesus Christ, this is just ridiculous. So we've done a mass culling. So now we're down to two. There's nickkemptherapy.com, which is everything to do with private work. And then there's nickkemptraining.com, which is everything to do with trainings, courses, and what I do in uh, business sector. So right. nickkemptherapy.com and nickkemptraining.com. You'll also find me, of course, on Facebook um, under Nick Kemp Training and also under just me, Nick Kemp. Great, great. And there will be links to both of those sites and um, um, and the Facebook pages over at this particular episode of uh, Hypnosis Weekly on this particular page. Um, for now, Nick, thank you very much indeed. We'll look forward to welcoming Nick back in just a few moments. Great. I really enjoyed that. We'll be back with Nick for our professional discussion shortly. Now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. And okay, many, many of you have written to me and asked me about it. There has been a single major news story dominating the world of hypnosis and hypnotherapy, a story that's been going on for the past four years and reached ahead in uh, these recent weeks. The Washington Post led with the headline, Three teens died after being hypnotized by their principal. Now their families are getting $200,000 each. Now, despite this title, including the words, three teens died after being hypnotized by their principal, there is no evidence to suggest that hypnosis was actually directly related to or the cause of the deaths. There is no clear link between hypnosis sessions and the suicides. The main issue seems to be that the principal was unlicensed to use it and in some cases was hypnotising students without the permission of parents. In very general terms, there is no evidence or precedent cases that have proven the hypnosis can cause or lead to suicide in and of itself. Now, the Washington Post adds, Hypnotising someone with underlying mental health issues can cause problems, the Tampa Bay Times reported in 2011. If a student or person is needing something to help them relax, there's usually some underlying issue causing the anxiety, and they probably should see a mental health professional. So says Richard Spanner, a Tampa psychologist. The issue in working with hypnosis is that there can be latent things that are triggered, like past experiences and memories, and the patient can have a bad reaction, Spanner said. Does hypnosis cause suicide in and of itself? That's not really likely. Can it trigger some sort of mental health problem that was dormant? Yes. That's according. That's the, that's the quote, end of quote there. You see, what I'd be inclined to say in response to this is that in therapy, Suicidal ideation is sometimes a contraindication to working with hypnosis. Hypnosis can magnify thoughts and ideas and a properly qualified hypnotherapist ought to know that. Yet there is no mention at all anywhere that these students were experiencing suicidal ideation and definitely no mention that they were seeking hypnosis to help overcome chronic mental disorders. 
If they did have suicidal ideation, did no one else have any suspicions about it at all? Did no one see that this was happening and seek more formalised assistance from doctors or psychiatrists? Now, we may never know what truthfully went on or know the true mindset of the individuals who committed suicide. But it has been stated in the articles that they were all trying to pass exams or perform better than they were doing. Using hypnosis as a regressive tool potentially runs the risk of re-traumatizing or even creating false memories. But it's not suggested that this was being done. And there's not actually any suggestion that other explanations have been thoroughly examined or scrutinized. Why are the exam nerves not being mentioned as a contributory cause of the suicide or pressure to perform or the pressure to do well in exams, for example? One of the students is said to have felt depressed and anxious about not achieving the grade she wanted and felt her educational attainments were going to be detrimentally influencing her life going forward. How has this mindset not been attributed as a possible contributory factor? What's more, why is it not being examined that one individual committing suicide could seed the idea for another individual to do the same within the same school? Instead, and for some bizarre reason, the use of hypnosis, a largely misunderstood subject matter, by an unlicensed practitioner is being blamed for the deaths. Here is what Damien Mallard, the lawyer for the parents of the three children, stated. It's probably the worst loss that can happen to a parent is to lose a child, especially needlessly because you had someone who decided to perform medical services on kids without a license. He altered the underdeveloped brains of teenagers and they all ended up dead because of it. That sentence was used repeatedly in the Daily Mail's coverage of the story too. And I'm going to repeat it. He altered the underdeveloped brains of teenagers and they all ended up dead because of it. Really? Hypnosis can do that? Hypnosis can honestly alter brains so that people with apparently no predisposition for mental illness will commit suicide. We need to be careful because surely someone is going to weaponize this. Or, as the famous US mentalist Kreskin went on record as saying in the New York Daily News, if it's possible to cause suicide through hypnosis, should I seriously consider going on satellite television with the attempt to attract viewers who are members of ISIS and then bring about mass suicide of our enemy? The families are grieving, and no family should have to go through the loss of children. Sometimes grief can cause people to perceive things in a particular way. Hypnosis is a subject that creates sensationalists, headlines, and is being used with that effect across many, many media stories. I mean, you Google you Google uh, this particular story and, and virtually every broadsheet and tabloid has covered it. In the Paul McKenna versus Gates trial here in the UK back in the 1990s, it was proven that the hypnosis used in the stage show could not and did not cause the mental illness of the individual claiming that it did. A quality expert witness gave evidence about the true nature of hypnosis. In that particular case, it was Professor Graham Wagstaff. I am certain that if this particular case had not been settled in this fashion with the payouts, it could have been proved that hypnosis was not the problem per se. 
I understand that you'd not want an unlicensed practitioner working with your child without parental permission, and that may well be one area that the school board felt they were vulnerable and open to litigation problems, and so settled out of court. Heck, they're not interested in, uh, in defending the subject of hypnosis. A number of students actually set up Facebook groups in defence of the principal, with one of the students stating that his test scores went up massively due to the hypnosis, and some pupils had claimed that it uh, that, that they felt the principal was being made a scapegoat. No parent wants to think that they were unable to spot suicidal tendencies of their child, and it can be a subject that people wish to find outside blame and reasons for, especially when a subject like hypnosis is then involved. I think they've got hypnosis wrong. In all the accounts of the deaths being given by witnesses, they all refer to the students being in trance-like states, and that's not what hypnosis is or what evidence would suggest it is. For example, I'll quote, On March 15th, 2011, Freeman had a painful dental visit and while driving home with his girlfriend, appeared to be in a state of hypnosis. His girlfriend says a strange look came over his face and he veered off the interstate. Freeman later died of his injuries while his girlfriend survived. End of quote. He appeared to be in a state of hypnosis. What do they mean by that? How does someone appear to be in a state of hypnosis? Was he walking around like a zombie with his arms extended in front of him? Is that really evidence of what hypnosis is or does? The evidence would suggest that hypnosis is not like that and is not about that at all. This is a common misconception, a popular myth. If he was behaving in a particularly unusual way, could it not be due to something else? Another example, I mean, especially after a painful dentist visit, Another example, quote, of a witness with with one of the others. Quote begins, Lyle said that sometimes when McKinley got on the bus after the hypnosis sessions, he wouldn't know his name or who his friends were. On the day he died, he allegedly asked Lyle to punch him in the face. End quote. Again, this sounds more like cliche and misinformation to me. How is this proof of hypnosis? Hypnosis is not actually like that. It does not put people in places in their mind where they're incapable of functioning. This is, again, further misconception about what hypnosis actually is. All the evidence suggests hypnosis is quite different. The deaths have not actually been linked to hypnosis, but the words hypnosis, hypnotized, and suicide are what are making up the headlines of the mainstream media. And it's not good publicity for this field of ours. Many people are hypnotised in therapy rooms each day around the world and have been throughout modern history and we do not have droves of people committing suicide as a result. What's more, I can find no evidence anywhere or any other case that proves that hypnosis was the cause of a single suicide. Now this is a big discussion and it is contentious because there are deaths of youngsters involved. And that's really sad, and I feel for the families who have lost a son or a daughter. There are undoubtedly some negligence issues and conduct issues with what went on here. But can hypnosis honestly be held responsible? What evidence is there to suggest as much? I wish the headlines would be reworded. I wish the media would stop trying to portray it in a way that suggests hypnosis caused the deaths in a sensationalist fashion that they do. 
Therefore, with regards to this particular hypnosis in the news section, I shall leave you with some more words from Kreskin on this very subject. Quote begins. The question I suggest is who in the hell had the asinine, imbecilic, stupid, unscientific idea that this had to do with hypnosis? Hmm. Uh, links to these media stories that I've uh, mentioned here are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion. I welcome back Nick Kemp. When I spoke with Nick briefly a few weeks back as we discussed this recording prospect, I asked him if we could examine and explore provocative change works. I really wanted to hear about it and understand it better. As with the interview, I got so involved with this discussion that I often forgot I was actually supposed to be recording a podcast. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about it all as much as I certainly did. Here is this week's professional discussion with Nick Kemp. Enjoy. I'm delighted now then to welcome back uh, Nick Kemp. Um, one of the things I was uh, I was really keen when when Nick and I spoke briefly a couple of weeks ago, um, um, I asked about this idea of exploring provocative change work, something that many of my professional peers speak very highly of, and so I'm thoroughly excited. Um, Nick, before before we start sort of probing and exploring it, can you just tell us a little bit of a nutshell for those people completely in the dark, perhaps? What actually is provocative change works? Okay, good question. Good question. Provocative change works is a model where the practitioner is provoking through conversation changes in the client, so the client is able to affirm. Uh, new insights, new thinking, new feeling that results in demonstrably better and more useful behaviour. Right, right. So, so let's let's wind it back a little bit. Then, um, how, how did it come to be? How, how did you, you know where you are at today with provocative change works? You know, you know, teaching this stuff all around the world. Yeah. Um, 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 how did it get to there? You know, tell us a little bit about the history. Sure. Well, firstly, um, my background is um, very much in um, problem solving and figuring stuff out. And I, by 2004, or a little bit before that, in 2003, I'd already done lots of big NLP trainings with Richard Bandler and other trainers. And I'd been interested in people like Stephen Brooks and others in hypnosis and I was on a Bandler training in London, helping out behind the scenes uh, on a master prac training. And Bandler said, well, you know, there's lots of people who have interest, influenced me over the years. Some of them you know, Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, etc., Milton Erickson. And then there are others, um, like, for example, Frank Farrelly. And then he said something that got everybody's attention. He said, well, if you think I'm, think I'm crazy, you should meet Frank. <laughs> And 130 would-be master practitioners all leaned forward and wrote down Frank Farrelly provocative therapy. Yeah. Um, I later introduced, I later rather interviewed Richard on Frank Farrelly, um, and he first picked up Frank's book, Provocative Therapy, in a store in Berkeley and hosted Frank uh, in Santa Cruz. Um, 
around or just before the time that he wrote Frogs into Princes. So, long story short, I'm 2003, I'm in this workshop, I hear the name Frank Farrelly Provocative Therapy. And a few months later, I get an email from my good friend Andrew T. Austin, author of The Rainbow Machine, that says in the subject title, he's alive and coming to the UK. And I thought, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, and what he, basically, long story short, is that Frank Farrelly is who we didn't even know was alive, you know, never mind coming to the UK, was coming to um, teach, of all places, in Bournemouth, down where you are. Yes. Um, or in Parkstone, strictly speaking. It's, you know, near yeah. Bournemouth. Yeah, around and the corner. And so I book on this course months and months and months ahead with the full expectation with my background of being on courses with insane numbers of people that it's going to be stacked out. I turn up and there are 17 people on this course. Andy, um, his friend, my, myself and my wife make up like a third of the course. And the attendees on the course are split evenly between uh, very experienced NLP trainers and practitioners and ardent feminist social workers, mm. which is an interesting <laughs> dynamic. And for the next four years, I witnessed Frank teaching provocative therapy, which mostly consists of Frank working with clients and us all looking extremely confused, trying to ask questions from a hypnosis or NLP point of view that really don't hit the mark at all. Yeah. What I'm seeing is I'm absolutely fascinated because I'm seeing everything that I've seen in hypnosis and NLP, but I'm seeing it all done conversationally. Mm. And I can't fit it into my Ericksonian model, my meta model, my NLP thinking. I really don't know what to make of it. It's a bit like I don't even know whether I like it, but I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah. And from that, I immediately said, okay, so I uh, spoke to Frank and um, I said, well, you know, I'm interested in, you know, what material is there? And he says, well, it's the original book, Provocative Therapy. And I said, yeah, I've got that. And he says, uh, there is a second book. I go, fantastic. What's the second book? He goes, well, the book's called Me and God, but it's only in German. <laughs> right. Brilliant. So I'm thinking, do I want to learn German? <laughs> Not really. Um, I said, okay, so what about CDs? Uh, short answer is there are no CDs. There are no DVDs. There's no recorded material bar one cassette tape of uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder uh, talking about Frank Farrelly way, way, way back in the day for some um, psychotherapy program in America. So I decided to get Frank over and host him um, in Leeds and before then get him to come in and record his book, Me and God, as an audio book. In and English. In English, because <laughs> Frank doesn't speak German, that's the other thing. In English, and he comes to stay at my house um, and we allocate 10 days. It's 33,000 words is this book. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking, just before I'm about to record him, I suddenly have this thought, shit, what if he's one of these people that's not able to perform in front of a microphone? Because we could be here forever. Yeah. Some people, presentation-wise, are just not that comfortable. Anyway, bottom line is we do the whole book in three and a half days. So we've got six and a half days free. And in out of 33,000 words we do three minor retakes. That tells you about right. the level of concentration. Yeah. 
Um, so I become friends with Frank and host him every year in the UK, as well as taking him down. He does uh, some workshops at Sue Knights down in Buckinghamshire, which are very much in-house workshops she does. And we become very good friends, um, although in some areas we could not disagree more, you know. But I'm fascinated in his 50 years clinical work and how he's using his approach which has not come from uh, NLP or hypnosis, because Frank was doing this in the 1960s. Yeah. He trained originally with Carl Rogers, so it's a completely different lineage. And during one of the workshops, we're doing the, um, the wrap-up at the end of the workshop, and uh, Frank says, well, I'm very pleased for Nick bringing me down here, and uh, of course he could run one of these. And I'm thinking, what? I hadn't even entertained the idea of teaching this work because it was merely a two-year introduction at this point. Yeah. And I thought, wow, okay, let's think about this. So I, start, I started uh, around 2009 co-presenting with Frank on the uh, Leeds UK workshops. Some of that's actually, uh, we've documented all that. Some of that will be released. Um, but also what I'm noticing is that in my own work, I'm using a lot of Frank's work, but it's not straight-ahead um, provocative therapy. So I think it'd be more correct and accurate to call it something different. Uh, so, I, so I come up with the name Provocative Change Works, which yeah. is also my kind of fun having everybody use the embedded suggestion every time. <laughs> yeah. Provocative Change Works? Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> I can't claim that that sole sort of um, embedded command is responsible for the success across the planet, but I don't think it's done any harm. No. Um, uh, and I'm, now I'm teaching that in 13 overseas countries across Asia, USA, uh, Europe, and, of course, England. Yeah, wow. Uh, so we're taking – so PCW is essentially all Frank stuff, but added in um, uh, a lot of Ericksonian-type work, but with my twist on it and – time framing things specifically for coaching or therapeutic clients so they get a recording of the session um so it's many more levels to and layers to it yeah now i want to ask you about it um I, I'm, one of the things that i'm really intrigued with there though is the fact that you, you know frank frank himself and frank affirming um, um his belief in you and your knowledge and so on i think is quite indicative of some of the components um, um, that, that, that I've seen with regards to the relationship between the two of you, you know, um, the way that you communicate about him, the stuff that I've read and so on. You know, I, I love the idea that you even say that, you know, you didn't always, you know, you don't always necessarily get on or, or, or agree with, with everything in the same way. Can you just tell us a little bit about your relationship with Frank, how it developed um, 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 and, and you, you know, how it has provided the, the sort of foundation um, um, of, of, of what you now do? Sure. Well, Frank's, Frank's a real straight talking guy. Yeah. So in my life and even in my business world, I always found I got on best with the people who had a definite point of view and were very straight talking. Yeah. Um, when I first first met Frank, we, we discovered that we had a mutual love of certain things. You know, the main thing being movies. Yeah. When he was uh, bringing him over to um, record him, you know, as soon as I mentioned that I had a... Uh, a uh, home cinema set up with a giant screen and 7.1 sound, his eyes lit up massively. <laughs> um, 
And Frank's the only person I know who's ever been able to sit and watch one day, over a three-day period, we watched all three seasons of the Western Deadwood with Ian McShane. Yeah. And high definition. Now, let me tell you, that's some going, because on the second day, we managed to start at 9 a.m. and finish at midnight. (laughs) Basically hallucinating, hallucinating night fights in the Old West. (laughs) So... Frank was Frank was a great conversationalist, a great lover of uh, music, singing, um, basically human interactions and human experience and expression. Yeah. And he was exactly the same when he was in the workshop or if he was out taking him around his favorite trip. He loved to go around Walmart in Leeds and look at all the endless different um, aisles and things there. He had an innate curiosity and driving force into wanting to know about things. He was also very interested in technology, so he was a a big Mac user, which I teased him mercilessly about being a PC person, Um, and uh, very interested in photography. So all the things he was interested, if we think from an NLP or hypnosis point of view, visual medium, auditory medium, very interested in that whole world. So we became good friends as well as professional colleagues. And I have many sort of private conversations, which he suggested we recorded. So I recorded all his conversations. When he passed away a few years ago, he um, basically bequeathed the archive of all his material to myself. And his son, Tim, rang me up from Wisconsin and said, "Uh, Nick, I've, uh, I've got all this stuff here what do you want me to send over? And I said, well, Tim, I mean, how much have we got? And Tim said, well, look, bear in mind, Frank never threw anything away. There's boxes and boxes and boxes of material. And he said, look, I've costed it up. It's going to cost $2,000 just to ship it, and that's the most inexpensive way we could do it. And I said, Tim, ship the lot. Ship everything. So I have uh, material going back predating NLP. I mean, even predating Frank creating provocative therapy. Um, And the thing with Frank's work is that it was hugely, hugely ahead of its time. Yeah. You know, um, although he trained with Carl Rogers, um, it's fairly much on record of Carl Rogers saying, if I was starting out again, I would really be looking at the sort of approach that Frank's working with. And Bandler and Grinder, the co-creators of NLP, said to Frank, we think of you as the rocket science of the whole personal development field. Mm. Uh, And even when I interviewed um, Richard Bandler around sort of like 2006, he was saying that Frank was one of the few things who was one of the few people, rather, who was really getting results. Uh, John Grinder, similarly, I hear through uh, third-party sources, was very, very respectful of Frank's work. Frank mm. never spoke to Milton Erickson directly, but he did speak to his wife, Betty Erickson, for a period of time on the phone, and she said that uh, Milton was very interested in what Frank was doing. Right. Wow. Do you think that your friendship with Frank, that you know, outside of the... the, the, the you know, outside of his professional work, helped you to understand some of the underpinning philosophy behind it uh, and therefore made you more more sort of um, appropriate as someone to, to pick up the mantle and go and share it with the world? 
Absolutely, because Frank never explained anything. People would come to a workshop, which would be um, the, would be basically a series of interviews or demonstrations, and then the audience would be invited to ask questions uh, and make comments on what they were seeing. The difficulty, of course, is that people are seeing this multi-leveled, multi-layered change process with no reference into NLP, hypnosis, or anything else, and wouldn't know what to ask. Yeah. So you would get sort of like some very well-meaning but incredibly clumsy questions or some occasionally quite good questions but mostly people were just confused to hell from watching stuff you know one of my jobs and roles has been to decode what frank's doing to make it teachable for people um and there's really for my around the world in terms of provocative therapy there's really only one other person who i would rate highly which is Dr. Noni Herfner, who's based in Munich, who had been hosting Frank for much longer than I had, yeah. and who really got the spirit of this is about a friendly communication. You know, this isn't like Jack Bauer from 24 torturing some Iranian suspect. You know, <laughs> it's done in a friendly way so that the provocation is done as if talking to an old friend. Yeah. Um, and the spirit of that requires a really, you know, a real awareness of human um, interaction. And Frank famously said one of his quotes was, throw away your professional dignity in the service of the client. So uh -huh. without doubt, the friendship and the association allowed me to be able to really probe and ask questions. And he was really interested because a lot of the time, let's remember, there's nobody who done had the background in NLP who was up close uh, looking at what he was doing. There were people who would come in and out of workshops, but he would be staying with me on average between three and four weeks every year for a period of sort of eight or nine years. Yeah. So as well as the workshops, I got to be able to talk to him, interact, ask questions, did a lot of private video talking about his influences, his thoughts. Um, so all of this helped give a much, much better insight into you know, his working process and allowed me to develop and I think evolve the PCW model, which he was also highly supportive of. Um, so let's let's talk about that then. Um, um, I mean, I mean I, I'm already beginning to get a flavour from my own research um, um, and 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 viewing, um, getting a bit of a flavour. Is when we talk about provocative change works, are we talking about techniques that are applied? Are we talking about an underpinning philosophy? Um, are we talking um, that 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 we sort of act upon? Um, 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 what is it? How does it how does it manifest itself in reality? Okay, good question. Well, the answer is tick all above boxes. Yeah. Yes, there are specific techniques that I will use uh, with clients. I mean, the voice tempo exercise is one that we talked about earlier on, which is great for reducing anxiety, and there are other set-piece um, techniques as well. But, and this is big but, the size of a giant Hollywood sign, yeah. the approach is not just techniques, you know. The approach is based around the practitioner is able to adopt a series of different stances which get the client to rethink and affirm different ways of thinking and different ways of feeling. So let me give you a quick example. Yeah. In standard coaching and NLP, you would usually start the session with what, what do you want? And then you would set up like a grid of what the client 
what what do they need to get there? What happens if they don't get there? What resources do they need? How do they get the resources? So you send up essentially a grid of possibilities. In provocative change works and provocative therapy, you start off with the question, what's the problem? And then the practitioner will encourage the client to do more of the same problem. I'll say that again because that sounds yeah. a bit strange. The practitioner will encourage the client to do more, think more, and maintain the problem. The client will then argue for the change and then start to affirm why it needs to be different. Mm. The practitioner will do this by going through a series of different stances. So let me give you a quick example of that. There's two main ways that you would do it. One is directly. So have you, did you, are you, are all direct questions. Yeah. Other questions, more indirect questions, would be people say that. So, for example, people say that. People in Bournemouth, you know what they're like. <laughs> so it's all indirect. Yeah. And these, this dynamic of using these different stances produces a, a different energy shift in the sessions. And because the, the practitioner is not going down a logical, digital, sequential, um, technique-based, predictable cognitive process. It's much more conversational as if you were talking to an old friend. So the practitioner will jump around a bit. You know, I often talk about PCW as being a bit like jazz. You can play inside the melody. You can play outside the melody as well. Right. But the important thing is that you're constantly provoking changes in the client so the client starts to think about things differently yeah. now from an nlp or hypnosis point of view you can see all sorts of stuff going on you can see uh time timeline changes you can see pattern interrupts you can see um state changes stacking states essentially the equivalent to compulsion blow compulsion blowouts but it's all being done conversationally yeah. There's very little formalized, um, structured work. Sure. Um, and, and when the structured work comes in, in PCW, it's usually very precise, very succinct, and with a very specific purpose. Right. Um, um, and with regards to the provocation, okay, now, um, I, you know, I, I, I myself have been on, a, um, I've been on training courses with Richard Bandler and, and heard references and, and did exactly the thing that you spoke about previously where, where Frank Farrelly was referred to and um, um, everybody sat forward, started making notes and, you know, instantly we're going to go and get the book or, or have a discussion um, and find out more about this. Um, what? With regards to the, the the level of provocation that's used by by Frank or by yourself, um, um, I think perhaps there's the, the, there's the potential for there being some some myth created about how severe it is and how strong it yeah. is. Um, 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 is that the case? Am I right to say it's myth, or am I or, or, or am I being misled by my own by my own safeguarding here? And actually, what is it as provocative as that? Uh, you know, is there a call for things to be quite severe with the provocation? Well, the, the, the first of all, there's, it, the challenge for me is in teaching this, and in, in the end I, I started to do introductory um, 
talks, which is essentially what I call a level one training as an overview of PCW. Yeah. So it'd be mostly teaching people about how provocation works. Sure. And then after doing, I think after the first few trainings in Japan, they wanted a full practitioner. So I made it into a 10 day training right. with uh, case studies and much more intensive exploration and lots of fly time and interaction. Yeah. The biggest challenge is that there are a lot that, the difficulty is, especially if people are coming at things from an NLP point of view or some hypnosis schools, where they see everything as almost like prepackaged. Um, everything is sort of like wrapped up into digital logical sequential sequences. Yeah. The 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 secret to provocation is the ability to work in a light way with clients, but also the degree to which you do that will depend vastly upon what's coming back from the client. The other thing is that the client's experience can be very different from the people in the audience. Yeah. So very early on when I was teaching, when I was back teaching NLP courses, I was teaching prax and master prax. On one uh, master prax course, I was demonstrating some of Farrelly's work. And I was working with this guy, Adam, another Adam, not you, a different Adam. Yeah. And um, the, one of the women in the audience at the end of the session said, oh, I just think that was outrageous. I mean, you just savaged this poor guy. The client, Adam, went, really? I loved it, he said. This was the first time I got to honestly talk about this issue without any sort of like fuzzy, disassociated intellectualizations. I'd like to keep going. So there's a very different perception often from the client and from people watching a client. And then there's also a whole bunch of people who've never been on any trainings who have completely made their mind up that anything re that results in provoking change in the client is a bad thing. Yeah. Which I would arguably and respectfully suggest that if you're paying, paying someone to work with you, if they're not able to provoke or stimulate any change, there's a very strong case to say that's taking money uh, inappropriately for work. Yeah. Because you may be at best doing nothing or at worst reinforcing the same problem the person's come with. So the provocative therapy, and I said this openly to Frank, was like the best kept secret on planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, it was just ridiculous. The number of people who knew about it was tiny, and the misconceptions were phenomenal. Richard Bandler uh, sort of obviously, in my view, was influenced by Frank, but didn't really get Frank's work. And I interviewed Richard quite, quite extensively on this, and I also interviewed Frank on Richard, so I got it going both ways. The key thing with working using provocation is it's all context um, relevant. It depends yeah. what's coming back from the client. Right. Because one of the things as a practitioner is you don't have a preset this is what I'm going to do, route map, sort of satellite navigation through the sort of deep recesses of the client's psychological problem. You're only working with what comes back from the client in the here and now. And that's why you need the skill to be able to pay attention, yeah. watch and listen to what's happening. So it's not going to be, you're not going to learn to be able to use these skills in just a couple of days. No. But you can get a sense of how to use it and with greater integration, can really do extremely well. Yeah. You know, I just finished doing a workshop in London um, hosted by the Performance Partnership with some very experienced NLP people, and they loved it because a lot of what they were able to do or their understanding, they could then 
translate and use conversationally using the PCW model. Yeah. So the two work very, very well. But um, the main thing is you have to have some experience of it in order to be able to form some really good opinion. Yeah. And, you know, some of the some of the stuff that I would work with and I've seen Frank work with clients from the outside, you might think, bloody hell. You know? <laughs> um, but the important thing is the clients responding to things. When Frank worked in Mendota Mental Hospital for many, many years, the clients he worked with were mostly the catatonic clients and also serial killers and all sorts. Yeah. Nobody else wanted to, to work with these people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, the proof is always what you can demonstrate in terms of established results. Yeah. I've done about 7,000 hours now, private client sessions using PCW. Um, so I'm pretty happy with the model and the approach, yeah. but I'm constantly refining and improving it. Yeah. So and, it doesn't... And, and provocation can come in many different forms, can't it? I, sure. mean, I mean, it doesn't just have to be a direct challenge or something. It, it can be humour, and it can be it can be provocation in a very sort of gentle, uplifting fashion as well. I, I yeah, guess very much so. And there's a lot of humour involved in it, and a lot of it is just innuendo. Yeah. So if I say, "Well, Bournemouth people, God Almighty," yeah. I'm not saying anything. All the gaps are filled in by the person at the other end. Yeah. You know, so, for for example, of the different stances, you would have, like, uh, one of the stances would be the ABC stance. So you might say to a client, okay, would you describe yourself as, like, absolutely brilliant, um, average, or lift and go to the top floor? <laughs> so you're eliciting an analog response from the client. Yeah. Similarly, another stance would be the digital stance. Okay, well, is it this or is it this? Yeah. So one of Frank's classic interviews that I saw him do on the first workshop, he talked with this girl about, she was asking about achievements in life, and he talked about, well, there's winners and there's losers. And he polarized the whole world into just these two categories. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, he doesn't believe that, but he's using that as a um, stepping stone to get her to think differently and to get her to affirm what's useful and what's helpful. The whole philosophy and the whole ethos behind PCW and PT is to assist the client in affirming what's better and more useful for themselves. So yeah. they become the authority, not leading them down so they're reliant upon the practitioner or therapist. Yeah. And then the client becomes more empowered and they become more um, self-empowered and find what's useful for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, now, I could just continue nonstop asking and asking and exploring this. You know, it's I find it so thoroughly stimulating. And, and I myself am very keen to come and um, attend one of your trainings. Um, um, and, and I really hope to do so in the near future. Um, for those for those people that are listening that want to learn more about this this particular approach, is it the same websites or are there different places they can go? Um, what, what's the best way for people to start to learn more about this? Is it to get themselves on a training? Is it to read certain books? Is it to buy certain products? What's the, well, what's the best the, direction? The, 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 the question is always with, with these, um, the starting point is always how do you give people some actual really some experience of it yeah. because reading the books it's like frank's original book um was great 
but it, it's, it's just an interpretation of different things. So here are a couple of simple things that I can say. On the 27th of October, um, the Performance Partnership, which is based in London, I'm doing an evening down in London, um, yeah. 7 to 9.30, which will be extremely inexpensive um, for people who are just interested in an introduction to what it is that I do. So yeah. that's Tuesday, 27th of October. Yeah. I'm running a level one training in London from, he says, looking at his diary here, uh, the 28th, 29th, and 30th of November. Yeah. Um, com has information on all my courses and what I'm actually doing. Great. Um, I also run an online course for people um, who are interested, and this is where they will get some video each month of a session to look at, and then at the end of the month, we'll discuss online and talk about it. And to do that, to inquire about that, just email me, which is very simply info, I-N-F-O, at nickkemp, N-I-C-K-K-E-M-P.com. We've been doing that now for nine months, and I've got people from India, Japan, Holland, New Zealand, um, America, all over the world on that. So yeah. it gives people the opportunity to to have something ongoing as like a CPD program. Right. There are also products available of Frank's products and products available of myself. I'll be selling these down in London and if anybody wants to ask about these you can also email me info at nickkemp.com I'm as keen as in as many ways to get the message out and to give people experience yeah so that they may love the whole model they may just like the hypnosis aspect of it or they may want to use five percent of it it's all about doing things that are demonstrably useful and to help other people because that really is the ultimate test you know, yeah. Is this transferable in a useful way? Yeah. Uh, and I'm totally convinced by what I see around the world that it is, and that's one of the reasons I'm pretty busy already in 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, I think I think that comes across that that message that 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 sentiment there that that the thought um, um really comes across when you go and start exploring it. Um, um. Nick, thank you ever so much for coming and being a part and, and sharing so generously today. Um, um, all you listeners, uh, um, go explore some of those areas and go and learn more about this. Um, Mr. Nick Kemp, thank you. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Some fascinating information there. I spoke to Nick after the recording and could have carried on talking with him all day and all night. Um, A link to the mentioned websites of Nick's all feature at the website, um, at the Hypnosis Weekly website, at this edition's page. Now then, on to uh, our hypnosis fact of the week. And the fact is simply this. What hypnotizability means and should mean is still very much up for discussion. So there is currently some debate as to what hypnotizability scales actually measure. Kirsch and Brathman in the early 2000s have pointed out that traditional scales such as the Harvard scale or the Stanford scale measure responsivity to suggestion in hypnosis. 
However, this does not take into account the fact that people also respond to suggestions without a hypnotic induction. Now, Kirsch proposes that responsivity to suggestion without hypnosis be termed imaginative suggestibility and that responsivity to suggestion following a hypnotic induction be termed hypnotic suggestibility and that the difference between the two be termed hypnotizability. An interesting one, another debate for us hypnosis eggheads. I do have many more exciting guests that I'll be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle, dot com. Next week, we have a slightly briefer but a special edition of Hypnosis Weekly that will involve some collating of information from all our previous editions before we return to our usual format with some fabulous guests thereafter. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Mr. Nick Kemp and thank you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.